RadioInfluence.com. You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of City Ringside. My name is David Penzer, and we are so glad that you are here, as always, to listen to this thing we call a podcast. And um, we're excited this week. We are going to have the Prince of Queens, Brian Myers, formerly known as Kurt Hawkins, uh, the co-host of the Major Wrestling Figure Podcast, longtime WWE superstar and uh, new Impact wrestling star and uh, we're going to talk about his ride in professional wrestling including what he thought about talking shop a mania and i enjoyed it from based on the feedback that i've gotten both on my twitter at david penzer by the way if you want to join um and and just twitter in general i think that uh if there was a thumbs up thumbs down and there might be in the wrestling observer um I think it would be like 95% thumbs up. Uh, I think it was people got what it was. I think they were very smart to promote it as the, the worst pay-per-view of all time. That way, if anything, if you rolled your eyes at anything, hey, they warned you. Um, but uh, I, I know I did a lot of wild lines and um, uh, to where like, you know, the loser of the match, you know, the winner of the uh, 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 contract on a tree match, who gives a fuck, that kind of stuff. And they just let me run with a bunch of wild lines. I didn't know which ones they were going to include, but I'm glad that they included some. And I, I, I hope that people got a kick out of them. And uh, and it, it was a blast to do. I did not know that they were going to do that uh, scene with uh, the Young Bucks. So I popped for that big time. And, um, and, and as I've said before, sometimes it's better not to know. Uh, also, uh, something new in the business this week, WWE Underground, Raw Underground. Uh, a lot of talk about that, mostly negative. I, I, it did accomplish two things. in my in my, And this is just my humble opinion. It's the first week. Uh, it accomplished me putting on Raw live for the last hour, uh, probably the first time I've watched Raw live and not on DVR and fast-forwarded to it in – few years so they it achieved that if it achieved anything i didn't hate it i didn't love it didn't hate it uh i'm not gonna watch it live anymore but you know i'll keep an eye on it see what they're doing um you know they'll probably find a way to to make it a one-trick pony thought it was interesting i never knew that um that Dolph Ziggler had such a uh, an amateur background in college that he was undefeated. So it was little tidbits like that that kind of got my attention that I thought were interesting. Uh, it was almost like Eddie Graham promotes WWE as, as crazy. That's almost as bad as, uh, as Southpaw Championship Wrestling on acid, like uh, Talking Shop of Mania was. But um, it was different. I don't think it's going to change anything. And, uh, and we're going to be talking to uh, Brian Myers about his experiences in WWE, like I said, if you want to join me on Twitter at David Penzer, all one word, and uh, be sure to uh, join us on our this ride I call professional wrestling. And uh, excited going back soon to uh, do eight Impact Wrestling tapings all the way through Bound for Glory. So we'll let you know a little bit about that uh, as it happens. So, ladies and gentlemen, right now, please welcome my guest. He is formerly known as Kurt Hawkins, and he is now known as the Prince of Queens, Brian Myers. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest this week on Sitting Ringside, longtime WWE superstar, 
He is the co-host of the Major Wrestling Figure Podcast. You might know him as Kurt Hawkins, and I know him as the Prince of Queens, Brian Myers. Brian, welcome to City Ringside. What's up, man? That was a great introduction. I feel like I'm on Saturday night coming out of the smoke and the uh, the robot-looking door. That was great. Yeah, um, yeah, that's one thing I know how to do pretty well. Hey, um, <laughs> hey before we get into to your story, a couple of things I wanted to hit. First of all, a lot of buzz about Talking Shop Mania this past Saturday. Um, I know that you were there and you were part of it. Uh, uh, played with some wrestling figures and uh, and you did a little uh, hunky tonk man uh, routine and then sat and drank some beers and watched two guys kill themselves. Um, just wonder what you thought of the final product. Um, I loved it. I mean, I had a couple of adult beverages with a bunch of my buddies, um, you know, other New York wrestling guys. We all kind of met up and uh, enjoyed it. And uh, I mean, everyone that I watched it with was laughing their ass off. So I think uh, if you ordered that thinking you were going to see like uh, Eddie Guerrero versus Dean Malenko, Matt Classics, you were uh, sadly mistaken. That's not what it was for. I think it's for sure served its purpose and was a huge success. And uh, I think there'll be plenty more. I hope so. I, I'll tell you this much. My wife, who's not a wrestling fan, mm-hmm. uh, and my son, my youngest son, who is a fan, but mostly like an AEW fan, mm-hmm. uh, he just got into it with AEW, with the video game type uh, stuff that they do, tie-ins. Uh, they were both doubled over hysterical laughing at several different points during the uh, during the event. So uh, I think if you could if you could get, the, you know, those aren't hardcore wrestling fans by any stretch of the imagination. Hey, did you know that they were going to do that uh, thing with the young bucks where they, uh, where they went back in time? <laughs> uh, yes, I did have a little inkling. Uh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that I popped for that. So to uh, be honest, like any good wrestling match, you know, I was on the roller coaster ride of the boner yard match, if you will. So, and I forgot about it. And then, you know, when it goes to that, you know, so really served its purpose, you know, um, it was great placement. Yeah, I popped for that big time. Uh, see, see, sometimes it's better not to, you know, we talk about this a lot, you know, people, you know, when the K-Fabe sheets came out and the um, and the Internet came out, everybody think, thinks it's cool to know stuff. And I thought I knew what was going to be on the show and I popped for that segment. So sometimes it's better not to know and be surprised for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is um, – we're a couple weeks in the baseball season, and as we tape this, both your Mets and my race aren't doing too well. I'm wondering uh, if uh, I'm wondering if you think uh, uh, these these teams have time to turn it around, or if um, if uh, it's not going to be either of our years. Uh, I mean, I think it's possible. It, I think just like any other season, you know, teams start out hot and they start out slow, but it's just a matter of how they heat up or cool up in this 60 game window. So it's definitely unique, but the the ups and downs are still the same. I would assume. I mean, the Mets have had some brutal kick in the dick type losses where they just kind of handed the other team, you know, the victory. So uh, we'll see. That's very, very Mets like. So, uh, you know, however long I've been a Mets fan, I'm very used to all that. Um, So I'm still faithfully watching and hoping for the best. And like I told anybody, I don't care that it's 60 games. If the Mets win the World Series this year, I will be celebrating my ass off, just like I would if it was a, oh, a, sure, a sure. real season. Yeah, It is a real season. Well, if, if they keep it, if they keep playing. Um, yeah, the one thing that keeps me hopeful with my fingers crossed on my raise is that uh, 
16 teams are going to the the the, the playoffs. So if you just have like an average cool. 500 record, I think you got a shot. Yeah, with that, I mean, you have a shot. And then it's like who's hot at the right time. You know, that timing is everything. And you get that lightning in a bottle and you head into playoffs with that momentum. And, you know, even a team with not such a hot record can't be stopped. Yeah. Well, the Rays always start slow, but um, I just I'm, I worry that there's not enough time to catch up. But we'll the see. Rays anyway, are this very, is a wrestling very podcast. Good, uh, young team, the Rays. So that's a, that'll be fun to watch for a couple of years. You know. Yeah, I'm excited. I, I actually I'm friends with one of the um, the guys in the radio, and uh, so when things started not going as well as I was hoping, I texted, "Who's under con? Uh, who do they have under control next year?" And basically, other than Charlie Morton, who is a 36 year old pitcher. Um, and one catcher, they got the entire team under control next, next season. So, so that gives me hope anyway. Yeah. Let's talk about wrestling. You grew up in New York. Um, I'm assuming that you were a fan of WWF, uh, but that's why we do the show to make sure um, my assumptions are correct. Cause sometimes they're not. Yeah. My first, uh, introduction to wrestling was my older brother rented, uh, WrestleMania six from like a mom and pop video store in my hometown. And, uh, I mean, I, I just like wore this thing out all weekend. Like it just blew my mind. I was five years old and it had, I, I tell the story a lot. It had, you know, it had all those like larger than life WWF characters on the show. But the one thing that's always stuck with me was the packaging. And that was like ultimate warrior and Hulk Hogan facing off with like lightning bolts crashing all around them and stuff. And I actually have that show poster hanging in my, uh, my man cave, if you will, just to kind of always remind me of, you know, how, how this all got started. And uh, that was it, man. I just literally loved it from the time I was five years old till, you know, I haven't stopped. If you had to pick one or two of your favorite wrestlers over the years and before you got in the business or even after you got in the business, uh, who would they be? Um, when I was a kid, it was like those larger than life guys, like I said, like. Ultimate Warrior, for sure, was one of the first ones. And then I, I really loved the Rockers when I was a kid. Kerry Von Erich. Uh, Mr. Perfect, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, as I got a little bit older. And uh, nowadays, I have very different ones, you know, because I appreciate guys in a different light now that I'm, you know, so involved. Um, my favorite wrestler of all time, I always tell people, is Chris Candido. I love Brian Pillman. I love Eddie Guerrero. Uh, There's quite a few. That's two weeks in a row. We had Lance Storm on last week, and he said the same thing about Chris Candido. So the, that that's as random as could be, but it just show, goes to show you what a mark that guy left on on so many people's lives. God bless that's, him. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Did you get to go to uh, Madison Square Garden for uh, wrestling growing up? Yeah, actually, a lot, actually. Um, so in Long Island, the Nassau Coliseum is actually the – the easier one to get to. So I have more fond memories of going there because I went to that one more often and it was more of like my home base, but the garden is a, you know, decent little train ride. And I went to a lot of shows there too, as well, growing up. And it's the garden, you know, even when you're little, you understand the significance of, you know, how special that building is. Yeah. I only got to go once and it turned out it was the, um, it, we were there for uh, the Christmas holidays, and my dad took me, and it was the the MTV show that actually Roddy P- Piper broke the gold record over Lou Albano's head. That oh, started nice. the, That started the whole freaking deal with uh, Mr. T and all that. So They, they uh, uh, recreated that with Cindy Lauper in the Coliseum with Slater when Slater was wrestling all the – he Slater was wrestling all the legends and stuff. I, was so, I remember being so jealous. He got to do that spot on Raw <laughs> with Cindy Lauper, and they smashed the record over his head. And then you can ask him this when you see him. Uh, she sent him 
in the mail, like another one autograph saying like, thanks and stuff for doing that. It's pretty cool. That's super cool. So yeah, did you always want to be a wrestler? Was it something that, you know, just always you knew that 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 was what you're going to end up doing or was it sort of, you were going to try it and see how it went? Honestly, yes. I like made up my mind very early on and I was just so obsessed, like going to shows, reading books, watching VHS tapes, collecting all the merchandise and toys and things like that. Just like obsessed with every aspect of it. And somehow early on, I read like an interview with Bret Hart where Bret Hart was really bashing uh, like backyard wrestling and stuff, which was pretty popular at the time too. So basically what I got out of the article was him saying that like, this isn't what we do. We're professionals. Don't be fooled and don't do this and think you're doing what we do. Cause it's not the same, you know, be smarter than that. And I guess I was smart enough to like understand that advice. So I concentrated more on sports. So I had three sport athlete in high school, all throughout growing up, football, wrestling, baseball. And, uh, I knew that I wasn't going to train until I graduated high school. And that's exactly what I did, you know, in the spring of 2003. You know, the funny thing about doing a podcast is you think, uh, you know, everything about the wrestling business and you find out when you have to do some research that you don't. I remember hearing about a team called the major brothers on the indie scene. And then in uh, developmental, I had no idea until I went back and started doing research that that was you and, and Matt Cardona. That's, that's an unbelievable run. Uh, so you guys, you guys must get along pretty good because uh, that's a long time. I I rode with Arn Anderson for a long time and different guys, but that's that's decades. Of, I mean, um, we won the. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but we won the the you know WWE tag team titles last year, WrestleMania in our hometown, in front of our friends and family, and we were you know turning I guess 34 at the time but we've known each other been doing this since we were 18 literally you know best friends traveled all around the world you know almost every state and uh really had a hell of a career at still a pretty young age you know so it was a really cool full circle moment especially to share with each other because you know our, our careers haven't always just been you know these peaks it's been a roller coaster ride of highs and lows and uh it was a cool to have that moment that full circle moment I'm sure better than if you did it this year and uh, in front of nobody, but that's all. I mean, that's yeah. It's actually, you know, it's funny. Like that moment was special to me, but then I don't want to compare it to like this year and people like me, you know, Drew McIntyre kind of really got screwed on a special moment. Uh, You know, we were, we were fortunate to have that moment and seeing what happened this year. We were incredibly fortunate. You know, now I look back on it. For sure. Um, so you t- you said Tommy Dreamer kind of found you and got you into uh, WWE uh, pretty quickly. Uh, were you guys hired as a team or were you hired as uh, two individual wrestlers and then they heard you were a team, so they put you back together? I actually think that's what really sealed the deal for us is that we were a team. Um, Dreamer was in talent relations and he was still able to like take bookings and stuff. So he came in for a Mikey show and worked a six-man tag with Matt and I. So that's how we were really like on his radar. And then there were like these weird local tryouts they were doing in early 2006. And uh, there was one at the Nassau Coliseum and Mikey said that Tommy said to apply for it. And we applied for it and we're, we're, I mean, still very, very green here. And we went and like, we're just uh, eager, you know, kids trying our hardest. We knew we did not look impressive let's say at this thing you know we was we just chalked it up as like an experience they had people from like all these different countries there different athletes there's only like a handful of us that even had pro wrestling experience it was a very odd uh tryout scenario 
Tommy literally sat down everyone in the group after and said, Hey, thanks for coming. You know, not much is going to come of this, you know, like basically told us like, you know, it, it was what it was. So we just talked it up as a cool experience. And then he called us that week and hired us. And I've always thought that our saving grace was that we looked alike. We had matching gear that we wore the whole day at the thing. And that just kind of separated us from the pack. And they were like, well, you know, let's not get nothing out of this trial. Let's give away when these two kids are only, you know, 20 years old or whatever we were. That has to be cool as hell. Uh, I didn't realize you guys were only 20. Um, so you go to developmental. I think you'd spend time in both Deep South Wrestling and OVW. A uh, lot's been said about Deep South. I know that um, I, I know what they were doing down there because it was the same thing that Jody and, and Sarge were doing at the power plant. So, you know, I've seen the I've, I've seen, you know, I, I, I understand a uh, lot's been said about it. Um, anything you want to add about the difference between those two uh, those two training facilities? Uh, they were very different like two almost extremes um I- i'm grateful for the experiences like i said man i got signed we're still green as goose shit so we needed all the experience we can get even if you know looking back on it some of the things we did were, were pretty foolish you know to be doing making guys do take all that many bumps in a day for no apparent reason you know you can learn in other ways besides just kind of killing your body like bill was big into you know separating the week and I, I'm all for that. You know, I think to be in wrestling, you should love it and be passionate about it and not, you know, be disrespectful to the business for sure. But there's other ways to like figure that out uh, instead of spending five days a week, you know, literally breaking your body down at a very young age. So I, I, I say this when people ask me at Deep South, I'm eagerly anticipating dark side of the ring, Deep South wrestling, because if they get <laughs> if they get enough of the boys to open up and talk about it. They'll have one of their more interesting episodes and for sure their funniest episode of all time if they, if they get the good stuff. So that's that. And then we, we had a very bizarre experience in OVW because Deep South basically shut down and they shifted uh, the five or seven of us at the time that were like almost ready for TV straight to Louisville. Everyone else went to Florida to start FCW. So it was only me, Matt, I think Angelina Love, and uh, Gallows and uh, Ray Gordy went to Louisville. So, and then in that same time, we got called up to the main roster. So we were basically there was a good seven eight month period where Matt and I were literally working seven days a week between full WWE road schedule and OVW. So we were like in it, but we weren't really in it. And, and all I really remember from being there is like you just it was so like deep South was so physically demanding. OVW was mentally demanding. Cause you would just kind of sit there and Al would like talk to you for four hours. So you just sit leaning on the ring, listening to Al Snow's words of wisdom. And that was like just as challenging as just doing the squats and the pushups and stuff. Cause it was so boring. I can't wait to, to watch dark side of the ring, uh, uh, deep South wrestling. But I, I gotta say as somebody who wouldn't be in this business, if not for Jody Hamilton, I hope he doesn't get the channel on his cable. Cause, uh, <laughs> Because I don't know that that's uh, one of the last things he wants to see uh, in, in, in what is an illustrious career. But uh, I understand it's controversial. I, I saw it myself and um, and and uh, just would hate to have him taken down by that. But that's just a personal thing because if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be here. Maybe that's yeah. a good thing. Hey, um, y- you get a pretty quick push as the edgeheads. Um, 
they really kind of lit a rocket under you. How was that? I mean, you're talking, what, 21 at this point? You guys are, you know, Edge has a run as a top uh, top heel. You guys are his, his. Uh, I don't know what you would call I don't want to say lankies. That's not fair, but his well, yeah, his, We were his fine guys. lankies. I mean, we pitched it like that, so that we've never thought that was embarrassing or anything, you know? Um, basically, we weren't, there wasn't a rocket lit under us. Like, we got called up into the fake ECW. And what we've always heard is there was supposed to be um, like a, a bunch of tag teams that to start a tag team division on that show. And they never did it. So they called us up with like basically nothing to do and nothing going on. And we were just straight up in limbo for a couple of months doing nothing. We, uh, I don't know because I've been in the business 16 years now and this is very rare, especially in WWE. We came up with the Edgehead thing, the idea, the pitch, Got everyone on board, and somehow everyone said yes, and it actually happened. So that does not happen very often in wrestling. Uh, it was all very fortunate. I mean, Adam Copeland did not know me and Matt Cardona from a hole in the wall. We were like, hello and goodbye was our entire relationship. And somehow he trusted us to do this and be a part of this like pretty amazing run. And then it was almost a year of literally watching uh, you know, the best wrestler in the whole world be the WWE champion night in, night out, work live events, work main events of TVs and pay-per-views. And we literally are there working with Undertaker and Batista and Ric Flair and Shawn Michaels like every night and having this insane firsthand learning experience like I don't think there's ever been in the business. You know, that's how fast-tracked our our education was. So uh, that that's what I kind of um, obviously, you know, attest all my – all my, not all my wisdom from the business because you never stop learning, but man, did I, I get a hell of a crash course in a year there. So let me ask you a question. You just mentioned that, uh, you know, you guys pitched it and they got, and they, they did it and that whole, uh, that it's not done very often that way. Um, you know, much been said about the creative process in WWE and, uh, you know, we'll get into more of that hopefully just in a little bit, but, um, but, you know, I have no idea. I was never there. How, how, difficult is it to achieve what you guys achieved and as far as pitching an idea getting it approved and them running with it <laughs> like i would say next to impossible it's just so there's just so many cooks in the kitchen that it's so hard to get something done to where you need to establish a racist relationship with vince where you can just go in there and ask him your damn self because it's going to take 12 other people to facilitate and get the message to him and it's just such a waste of everyone's time um, I, I saw an interview, I don't want to steal this, but I saw an interview recently with Eric Young where he said it's a flawed system. And I think that's the best way to describe it. It's a very flawed system. How could they fix it, in your opinion? You're a smart guy. I've been around the business almost, you know, 15, 16 years, 20 years, whatever. Uh, how do you think it could be fixed? Is it a Vince thing? Is it the writers? Were too many cooks, like you said? I, I do think it's it's too many cooks. And I just think Vince has to trust someone to write the show and that's it and go with it instead of nitpicking it and breaking it down and then overanalyzing it. I think, I think he just has to put that in someone's hands, one person, maybe two, you know, and that it's their vision and we got to run with it and see where it takes it. That, that would be my guess at this point, because when you're in a room, a production meeting with 40 something people and everyone's raising their hand and nitpicking every little thing, nothing's going to get done. And I've, I've seen it with my, my own eyes. So. so let me ask you a question. You started off uh, on top of the world as the Edgeheads. 
I don't want to say you guys never got back to that level, but not for an extended period, I don't think. Um, and I look pretty extensively. You guys had uh, you and Matt both had your runs, you especially um, on and off. Uh, is there a frustration of, 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 of never being able to get to that level or never for, for at least for a prolonged period of time? Yeah, of course. I mean, if you're not frustrated, then you shouldn't be involved in the business. You know, it's just you love it so much and you want the best of every situation. But, you know, not everyone can have this, you know, Hulk Hogan like career where you're just on top the entire, you know, it just doesn't work like that. You know, so you, you have to be what I always, you know, prided myself on was being like a chameleon of like, you know, I could do anything in any situation, you know, be in the, the comedy match, be the good hand guy that does the dark matches with the tryout guys. And we get a look at so-and-so, you know, things like that. You know, I was like a jack of all trades and I still am. And uh, I, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, obviously we all want to be top guys and make a million dollars, but it's also a blessing just to be involved in this business and make a good living too. So, it, you know, the old, uh, a bad day at my pro wrestling job is still going to be better than a good day at, at some nine to five office job I don't want to be doing. So as bad as that sounds, but. You no, know, funny as you say that, that you say that, cause I was going to ask you that. And you pretty much answered the question that, you know, you could either get frustrated and beat yourself up and, and quit and yell and scream that you're not, you know, getting the push that you might want, or you could just accept the spot and hope and keep trying to get to a higher spot, but, you know, take home a nice paycheck and enjoy the business. And you seem to have a good attitude. Um, it seems like that's hard though. There, any, any particular, I'm just, I haven't spoken to somebody who's worked there for so long. Um, really other than legends like DiBiase and yeah. Scott Hall and stuff. And well, that's like a whole nother generation. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I'm just, I'm not trying to like, you know, scoop any dirt out or get. No, you no. I mean, I, I'm very, I'm very honest and I built the fan base. on being honest. So I don't, I don't mind. Um, I always said this when I was there, I can't hit the game winning home run if I'm not even on the team. Right. You know, I can sit on the bench and get called upon and get that opportunity to throw a run. But if I'm not even on the team, that's not going to happen. So that that's the mentality I always had in WWE. Like, you know, okay, maybe, you know, I'm not booked on this Raw, but who the hell knows? Next week, maybe, you know, you walk past Vince in the hallway and he goes, God damn it, why are we not doing something with Kurt Hawkins? And that that's how crazy shit happens there. And I've saw it a million times. And then the flip side, I would what I also saw there so much was guys get let go and just sit around and feel sorry for themselves or make up some delusional uh, indie price for promoters and stuff and then end up not getting booked anywhere. And I was like, man, I'm not going to do that. And when I got let go the first time, I just hit the ground running, worked everywhere, you know, did what was asked of me, like, you know, what, you know, put, putting guys over and being, you know, uh, a good person to be around and nice and not a, a pain in the ass. And then I made money in my repeat business because people were like, holy shit, you know, we brought in Kurt Hawkins and he was incredible. You know, he did this, this and that. And uh, that that's the way I always saw it. And that's how I built my name back up the second time around, you know, just by not sitting around uh, thinking I was the man and waiting for people to call me. I went out and did it my damn self. So you mentioned your release in 2014. Well, uh, what were your thoughts? You really this, that was really all you knew, other than about a year and a half on the indies where you're fast tracked, uh, not because anybody, you know, pushed you like you were their kid or anything, just because you were talented. Uh, were you excited? Were you worried? All of the above? None of the above? Uh, I was ecstatic because they weren't using <laughs> me. <laughs> they weren't using me. I was sitting home getting paid and 
this might sound very strange, but I was, I was being paid to not participate in something I love. And that basically just hurt my feelings. Like I, I was miserable. So when they finally let me go, I became my own boss and I went out and did all these things that I wanted to do anyway, because like I said, when I got signed, I was 20 years old, they fired me at 29 or whatever it was. So, you know, I had, I gave my whole twenties to this company and I love wrestling so much. I love it in all forms and shapes and sizes. And at, especially at the time I got signed, I was really idolizing CM Punk and I wanted to run like that. Like I literally wanted to just conquer the Indies and work all over and get in the car and drive, you know, eight, nine hours with my buddies and work a show and then maybe get into Ring of Honor and then maybe get into Japan and then WWE. But I got signed at 20 and I'm not complaining. That's just what happened. So I had all these dreams and things I wanted to do. So I was thrilled to get off my you know, my couch where I, I wasn't literally being paid six figures to not go to work. And as crazy as that sounds, it just really hurt my feelings because I love this business so much. I wanted to be involved no matter what, you know, I, I screw it. If it's WWE, I'd rather go wrestle in a high school gym. That was my mentality. We talked about uh, you being a longtime Mets fan. I The first time I ever met you was at the Legends of Wrestling show at uh, City Field. I've been wanting to ask you this for a long time. As somebody growing up in New York City, cooler venue to work for, work at, Madison Square Garden or City Field? Oh, no, City Field takes the cake because I also don't know. <laughs> I also don't know if there'll ever be another show there because that one was so nuts. So that that. That whole day, I have such vivid memories of that show because it was such a big deal for me to like be a part of it. And uh, and then my business partner and I, Pat Buck, we went back a couple months later to talk to them about maybe doing uh, another show there. And they were like scarred from that experience, the whole office and like literally wrestling was like off the table <laughs> as of a couple of years ago. So I don't know if the, the, the wounds have healed, but um that's where it was at. So, I mean, if, if that's the one and only show there ever and I was on it and I came to the ring escorted by Mrs. Met and Mr. Met in more of my Mets gear, I mean, it doesn't get any better than that for me. So better than Madison Square Garden, really? Wow. It's I mean, I obviously the garden is the Mecca and it's a very special place, but I grew up really loving going to the Coliseum. So all my moments there and I've had some pretty awesome moments there, too. I, and I've worked the garden more times than I can remember, sure. but. Uh, the Coliseum is, is my more, you know, sentimental arena. I will tell you this. I'm and look, I'm not going to say that Brian Nobbs is the perfect businessman to deal with, but oh, man. you know, we, we all, we all know Brian's Brian, but I will tell you this as somebody who was very involved in that show and, and on with, on phone calls and emails with the, uh, the, the office, uh, of the, of the Mets that were promoting that, I will tell you that they had, they paid a ton of money for a show and if they'd have just trusted the people that they paid the ton of money to 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 let them run the show you know i understand if you know uh field conditions and stuff like that but yeah. you know they were they were i mean it was it, as 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 much as they were uh scarred from um from from dealing with us uh, we, we're, I still have some scars from dealing with them. They're, they're, <laughs> you know, I always wondered as a baseball fan, New York city, second or first biggest market in the, in the, the, the country. And, um, you know, the Yankees always do good and the Mets, not, not as well. And I always, I always wondered, you know, why can't you feel you got 150, 200, I don't even know how much money they have as far as oh. for payroll as opposed to a team like the Rays or the Royals or somebody like that, how come you can't, you know, be consistent? And if, if they're, and I don't want to talk crap about them because I know you're a big fan, but I'm just giving you a little insight. If the, that office is run anyway, like the team, I get it. 
Um, I mean, there, there's it's always been kind of like a black cloud over the team over every aspect of it. So you're, you're dealing with a team with very bad luck, and they attempted to run a wrestling show in the building that that team plays in. So what, <laughs> you need, I mean, you need to you hire start? you need to hire Joe Madden. He got the Cubs yeah. over the uh, over the, the red carpet there. Yeah, we. Uh, I remember after that show, I because I lived in Queens at the time and uh, my fiance now wife and gallows and Mike Knox were just back and we're sitting on my patio having some beers and we we're just like, what just happened? Did we just, it felt like we worked for like WCW and it's dying day of like, you know, the disorganized like chaos that was that show. <laughs> it was like just such an experience. It kind of was like WCW in a lot of ways. And, and um, the talent was there. It was, yeah. it was WCW plus me and gallows and Knox. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, you know, it wasn't it was it was a, a cluster. It did. You know, I don't think that that show gets the not to harp, harp on that show. I didn't mean to do that. But I don't think since you brought it up, um, it gets the credit it deserves because you put 10,000, 12,000 fans in a uh, 60, 70,000. Yeah, uh, I, I actually tell people that all the time because I people always ask me about the show. First off, does footage even exist of this show? I got no clue. Right. I don't think it does. Um, Some, somewhere. we. I mean, it was taped. So somewhere. Yes. Yeah. I always heard that it was like eight thousand plus. So like you said, if you look at that in a 60 something seater, it looks like shit. But eight thousand for a wrestling show is a lot of people. Like, So, yeah, it's just it was a very odd evening altogether. But I'll always kind of cherish it. Yeah, there's a guy, I can't remember the name of the promotion now, but there's a guy at Northeast Wrestling that, um, up before this whole craziness hit, that he would get like three or 4,000 people for his big show of the year. You might have probably even worked for him. Yeah, and, um, and, uh, excuse me? Is it Mike O'Brien? Yes, Mike O'Brien. And, uh, and, you know, everybody put over, oh my God, the biggest ending crowd. And, and I was like, just give us a break, man. We put almost 10,000 people in that freaking stadium. Yeah, no one ever thinks of it like that. Yeah, no way. Anyway, so you went back in 2016 to WWE. Uh, were there promises made to make you think things were going to be different? Or at that point, was it just the financial stability? Uh, you know, like you mentioned, you got married and planning a family. Um, so tell me about that. Well, I had done two years straight on the indies and like I was looking for a change and the opportunity came around. They offered me more money guaranteed than I'd ever been offered. So I kind of just thought, you know, why wouldn't I give it a try? Um, and, I mean, what I always was under the understanding was that they did the brand split and that's when, uh, what SmackDown went to sci-fi live. Well, SmackDown switched to live. That was the big thing. And, uh, the Vince just wanted guys that had already worked TV, you know, the guys that he didn't have to put in the PC for grooming and stuff, guys that just knew what the hell they were doing. So that they brought me and Shelton and Rhino back in just to have guys ready to go. So I didn't know that till after the fact. Uh, Road Dog was writing SmackDown and he called me pretty excited and like really wanted to use me. But I think that list of guys to get over the hump of that, like Vince just wanted some good hands, you know, like so to use this in like a pushing manner was such a hump. I think it was all kind of given up on pretty early. You mentioned WrestleMania last year and you guys winning the, the tag team titles uh, in your backyard in front of your family, which obviously was at, like you already said, an awesome moment. Um how, tell take me into WWE. How far in advance, you know, you they 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 had they were doing a losing streak with you, and um and this was like the end of the losing streak. How how far in advance do you find out 
that you're going to be in WrestleMania? How far in advance do you find out that the losing streak's going to end? Or are you just rolling with the punches and you know when they tell you, which is right before you go, you know, when you get there? Uh, I mean, that's a very long uh, answer. Um, basically, I was losing a ton anyway. Somebody wrote some article, some kind of dirt sheet article or something. People kept tagging me in it. And it was like, Kurt Hawkins loses his 100th match in a row. And I was thinking, okay, they're not doing anything with me, but that's kind of cool. Like, maybe there's something here. So then I kind of was, like, telling everyone, like, why don't I, like, run with this? Like, let's have, like, a losing streak and see where this can go. To the point where, like, I know there was one time on their, like, secondary show main event or whatever I was supposed to beat maybe Heath or something. And uh, the writer came out of the meeting and said, oh, Vince said, yeah, we were in Brooklyn. That's definitely what We were in Brooklyn. They were like, oh, Vince said, oh, let's give Hawkins a win. It's, you know, in his hometown or whatever. I said, ooh, you know, you mind if we don't? I'm like, I want to see what this, <laughs> you know, and they were like shocked. Because like, who the hell in wrestling? Everyone's such a mark for themselves. Like nobody has to lose, you know, but I was like, eh, who cares? Like, who cares? Let's see, like beating Heath tonight will be forgotten before I leave the building. If I keep this streak going, who knows what could come of it? And Little did I know what would have came uh, from it. You know, it, it, it reached a level. I thought 100 losses in a row was impressive. Then we got to 150. I thought that was really impressive. Then we got to 200 and it was still going. And I was like, okay. And then I always tried to not even think about how it would end because I didn't want to drive myself crazy. So, I, and it, it took a lot of the, the politics out of work. You know, you, like I wasn't showing up thinking like, oh, wow, this is the night I'm going to get this big push or whatever. I, I just was thinking like, oh, what's this guy's finish? And I could take it awesome and, you know, have a good time at work and not be worried about like, you know, if I'm getting pushed or not, you know. I, I just wanted to be on the show at that point because I, I told Vince to his face about this. I said, this character just needs representation on the show. That's it. I don't need a push or anything. Just people need to know I'm the guy that loses. And that's what happened. And like, I would go and do live events and it wouldn't even, it would, if I wasn't working with a baby, it was like over, like if it was like Kalisto or No Way Jose, man, the crowd would turn and they'd be cheering for me even as a heel because people knew, oh, it's the guy with the streak. Like what if he wins and I'm here live and I get to see it, you know, it became like a thing and it like organically turned me uh babyface even. And then, um, like a reverse Goldberg. It's that's what people would call me. It was awesome. I, <laughs> I loved it. I thought it was, it, it was so fun to deal with, you know? And then, well, there's a lot to this. Then I got hernia uh, in late 2018, and I thought I was going to be out. I had hernia surgery, and I thought I was going to be out for like two months, and I was actually looking forward to it, some time off. And then um, they, Mark Corano called me back and said, Vince saw my name on the injury report, and he'd like me to be a producer while I'm out and learn that side of the business. And oh, wow. that, that's not really an opportunity you can say no to, so I went, okay. And uh, I wound up working more hurt than I would have as active talent went to every, every single TV, you know, Raw and SmackDown pay-per-views, you know, in a suit, the whole nine, all the production meetings. But what that did was really, um, finally, like I was able to like establish a relationship with Vince and a, com a big thing that I think a lot of the boys don't have. I had, I was very comfortable speaking to him. You know what I mean? There was like a, you know, it wasn't like, Oh God, there's Vince. Now that all went out the window. It was just Vince to me. Like this dude, I deal with all the time on a regular basis now, instead of the, quarterly yearly pitch or something that you know people do with him so then when i returned to active talent after that little uh tutorial i uh i was very comfortable talking to him and pitching things and really uh zach and i assumed we were just in the battle royal uh at that pay-per-view and the tv before mania we pitched him on like an idea about um 
about like I knew if I was in the end of the battle royal, like people would care, you know. Sure. If, it, if I won, I thought it would be cool. And we were just pitching some fun stuff, whatever, just just to talk to him and touch base. And we knew Manny was coming up. And then there was some weird thing that like he was approving and disapproving everyone's gear. And I had I don't know if you recall, I had this green one night only New York Jets gear in the building that they play in. And it was very important to me that I wore it like I was playing. I was planning it for months. And uh, Mark Brown told me that Vince disapproved it. And I was like, why does he care what friggin jabroni kurt hawkins is wearing in the battle royal like who cares so we finished our pitch and i was like oh boss one more thing and i'm like you didn't approve my gear and he's like yeah and we talked about it and i was like come on and i i i think i like accidentally gave him this very passionate pitch about hey man you know the biggest you know hard luck loser in wwe is playing you know is wrestling in the stadium that the biggest hard luck loser football team's in in his hometown you know it's a one night you know only thing, and I kind of accidentally kind of got him real excited about that, and like he goes, "Oh God damn it, Hawkins, wear it or whatever," and we laughed, and like that was it. <laughs> and then the following TV, like they left them, they came out of the meeting, and um, Matt and I had nothing on the show, but they're like, "You, we think you might have a, a match at Mania." We were like, "What?" They're like, "It's not confirmed, but you might have a tag title match." And then we did, we did like a little teaser interview that went on like dot com that wasn't even on TV, and that was Monday. And then finally, I think we were at one of the autograph signings that week. You know, that week is nuts, full of events and stuff. And on, I want to say that Wednesday afternoon, .com, WWE.com's Twitter account tweeted the logo, like, you know, the match graphic of us versus Revival for the titles that made it. We were like, what on earth? So it just all just came out of nowhere. So that's how you found out when the graphics hit the, the Internet. Mm-hmm. Sounds so, like yeah. how I fe- sounds like how I felt that the WWE bought WCW. So, <laughs> nice, yeah. Um, yeah. so, um, so you win the belts, everything's going good. Tell me this: I've heard a lot of guys um, talk about uh, the, the insane, and and there's a lot of stories on the internet and stuff. The insane money WWE started to throw at guys to, I would assume, uh, to keep them from going to AEW, who they saw as potential competition. Uh, what was the the, mer- the word in the locker room going around? I mean, would, were people like, uh, were people like, I can't believe they're offering this kind of money? Yeah, absolutely. And then like, it was astronomical. And then once someone said no, then it went up for everybody, and that just kept happening. <laughs> like, it was like it, it wound up being what it was—too good to be true, really. To be honest with you, um, but yeah, it's just like more money than I ever imagined making in this business like that I signed for. So, and, and I was, like I said, I'd already been a producer. I was kind of like, and the, the big thing for them was the years. Everybody's contract was five years. That was, that was their big thing. And, you know, and, and, you know, the boys were all calling them the please don't go to AEW contracts, but that's fine. Cause I was like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm very comfortable here. Uh, I enjoy it. And, you know, I, I'm set up for post in-ring stuff you know i was like I'm, I'm more than fine with signing this you know at the time it was like okay sure was how many people do you think that they paid big money to would have ended up in aew i mean do you think in, in hindsight in hindsight it didn't work out because of the pandemic but nobody could have predicted that and do you think it was worth it was it worth the financial investment to keep the guys or you think they just should have let the the you know i understand you know certain names that you want to prevent from going but you mm-hmm. know to throw you know you know, ridiculous money at the entire roster. I don't know. I'm just wondering if if you guys rolled your eyes and just took it with a smile on your face, or if uh, if, if you think that AEW really would have come in and taken a lot of you guys. 
Um, I don't, I, I really don't know who's to say. I mean, I mean, Gallows and Anderson have gone on record and done interviews where they right. would have, you know, did been on that debut episode of Dynamite. You know, that was the plan. So there was that alone. I mean, and that's people whose contracts were up. Mine was actually up. Mine would have, would have been up last July. So like they had to like put the deal together for me. So, but like I said, I was, it, it was astronomical money. I asked for more and got it. And like I said, I was already set up, you know, for my post in ring career with WWE. You know, I was, I was prepared to be part of the family for a long time. So I had no, you know, it, it seemed like amazing. You know, sure. Why not? Plus, you didn't yeah. even know, like, AEW is amazing right now and a very, I think, a very cool product. But this is literally before they even have one show on television. So, like, you know, you're you're betting against the unknown, too. So it wasn't hard to be like, well, you know, you, you literally no idea what they're they're going to become. Well, and, and that was sort of my point. Um, so uh, you mentioned being a producer. Uh, one of my all-time best friends and favorite people in this entire business is Fit Finley. And I know uh, he's very well liked in that locker room. Talk to me about Fit Finley. Uh, did he help you out, take you under his wing? If I had to bet, I'd say yes. And do you have any Fit Finley stories? Uh, a lot, actually. So in that era of um, being with Edge every night, for the, for the most part, it would be Zach and I versus Fit and fill in said partner you know i know there's a whole a lot of jamie noble and fit there was a lot of fit and batista a lot of fit and hornswoggle where we worked with him which was a blast um but it's just like you know such on the job learning um he's for sure like you know the last of a dying breed the way you know just the way he did did, did business and stuff so um i'll be forever grateful to have those experiences to, to share the ring with him you know i know people learn from them now you know verbally but i was i got to like be in there and feel what it's like to be in with him and it, it was a different animal and it definitely changed me as a wrestler for the better so the pandemic hits um and everything goes crazy uh was it obvious at all or was there you as were you as surprised as gallows and anderson that uh that when you got your release you know like you said you were part of the family you were uh you were, uh, you know, producing and, and wrestling and uh, sort of like a player coach. Were, were you as surprised as they were? Or did you kind of see the writing on the wall? Uh, oh, no, no, shocked. Completely shocked. Absolutely really? shocked. Completely different from the first firing. The first firing, I'm like, oh, thank God. See you guys later. Thank you. This one, I was like, what? Are you serious? Just because I didn't even know what a pandemic was before all this happened. That word, <laughs> that, that word was not part of my life, my vocabulary, you know, and. I, the other thing that really, I think really messed my head up was literally the day before in one of my group chats, we were talking about it. And one of my friends, who I don't need to say his name, but he's very involved, was like, that'll never happen. They'll never let everyone go during a pandemic because that would just look so bad, you know, yada, yada, yada. Fast forward to now, 90 plus days later, they're literally the only wrestling company that's let people go in this pandemic. So it's still, it's still baffling to me. I've moved on. I don't care anymore. And I'm excited to be with impact. And, you know, I, I literally don't care anymore. It's it's like an ex-girlfriend. I'm not going to sit around and, uh, you know, be sad about her. I got to move on, but, uh, definitely still shocking. So I'm wondering, do you still watch WWE at all? I know WWE underground, uh, 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 recently debuted and again, a lot of people hate it and some people like it. Did you happen to see it by any chance? Um, I had it on, on mute while I was recording my podcast. Um, I thought it was silly. <laughs> I don't think, 
I don't think it's the answer to their problems at all. Guys that have no MMA background pretending badly to do MMA moves in a ring with no ropes. I don't really think that's what wrestling fans are looking for. Um, so there's that. I mean, I, I, I uh, it, it's, it's an overall thing for me. Like wrestling is live performance art. So all these shows in the pandemic era are just so hindered and it's so unfair almost, you know, sure. because wrestling's not meant to be presented like this. It's, it's just, it's, it's sad for everybody. It's sad for the boys. It's sad for the fans. It's sad for the viewers sitting at home because it's just all not the same, you know, even impact. I was so goddamn excited to be there and be wrestling. But then as soon as you, you take that first spectacular bump and man, there's no pop that just like literally sucks sucks the wind out of you where you're like, oh, man, what is this? You know, it's just so different. No, I mean, from my standpoint, and I talked about it last week, you know, I'm used to 30 years in the business. Uh, you know, you have a pay-per-view, you go out 30 minutes before the show, you warm up the crowd. You know, you might uh, uh, introduce a dark match, you count them down, you know, and then they're all going crazy because you're on live pay-per-view. And this one, I basically, uh, you were there, but I basically, uh, 15 minutes before it's supposed to start, I went and sat at my little, uh, <laughs> in my chair, and I put on my headsets and... Just they just counted down and it was on. It was the most bizarre thing that I've ever experienced. But you know, there's a part of me, and I'm sure you too, that's just happy to be, you know, back around the business uh, in a positive way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's all you can do. Like, you know, you got you got a glasses half full kind of look at it. You know, at least there is a product. Period. You know, uh, you know. Thank God they're not just replaying. You know, old WrestleManias over and over again, and you know we're not just playing old anniversaries over and over again and there's at least new content but it's really just not it's it's sad <laughs> it's just sad it really is talking about impact wrestling I, I think i know the answer to this question but what made it different what made it refreshing for for the guys that had been stuck in the the wwe system for so long well i think the biggest thing is that is these contracts for all the all of us that came in i mean every single one of us signed one of those deals and we all just kind of like sold our souls, you know, uh, for the money and maybe put our happiness or our uh, creativity to the side and just took the money. And it was what it was, you know. And for me personally, I always have my podcast as my escape, you know, kind of like to act like a kid again and remember why I fell in love with wrestling in the first place. So it was like, you know, I'd show up to work. I, you know, carry Mojo Raleigh through an eight minute match a main event and I'd leave and go to my podcast and kind of forget about work. And that's just the way it was. And that was just what life had become. So for me, and you know, I think all my friends that have now shown up at impact wrestling, I think the silver lining is that, you know, from bell to bell and, you know, our careers are going to have a different legacy. You know, there's a lot more opportunity, a lot more creativity, which is like the number one exciting thing for me. You know, I, like I said, it's, it's next to impossible to pitch ideas and make them happen. I mean, you have to be in that handful of top guyness to break through the events every week and get what you want. So that, that alone is just so exciting. And it's exciting to be a part of something that, that matters, you know, and sometimes in WWE, it's just such a big machine. Like you just don't matter. Like your existence does not matter and impact. I feel like, everybody's involvement matters, you know, like me tweeting about the product, bringing awareness to it matters, you know, my, me showing up on the show matters, you know, and that's very exciting to me. Yeah, it was fun to, you know, I had been there, 
you know, and, and seeing all these young guys and girls and being really impressed by them. You got a Rhino and a Hernandez sprinkled in here and there, but it's mostly a, a very young, uh, talented locker room. And to see uh, all you guys show up was, uh, I mean, it was just uh, incredible. My only wish, and I know that everybody wishes this, is I wish, you know, we could have fans you know, we could be playing in front of fans because I think they're digging what we're doing and I'm digging what we're doing. So but hopefully sooner than later. Hey, just to round things out, um, what are your short term goals in impact wrestling and your long term goals as far as the, the rest of uh, your time in the business? Well, um, hmm, that's tough because, you know, they're like constantly changing and evolving. You know, the long term long term goals. Like if you asked me this you know, six months ago, what a what a goddamn different answer you would have got. Um, but for me, impact, I want to be, you know, Mr. Impact Wrestling. I want, I want the world heavyweight championship. I want to be the, I want to be the guy that you think of impact wrestling and you think of me, you think of Brian Myers uh, and that's my goal. And I want to, and I also want to, you know, solidify the legacy of my career bell to bell and like, let people know that like, you know, I'm not just the losing streak guy and I'm not just, you know, the, you know, the guy that Vincent Mann saddled as a good hand. Like I, I can offer a hell of a lot more and be a big star and I'm, I'm getting the chance to prove it now. So now it's on me to prove everybody uh, wrong or prove them right. If you've always been a fan of mine. So I appreciate those people too. I don't mind being to put you on the spot, but if in two years, uh, some Mark Carano called and said, Hey, we want you back as a producer. It's something you would be interested in. Or you no, kind of had enough. No, it's a, that's another thing. So I, I often like as I get older, I wonder like, well, how much longer can I do this in the ring? And then what really did it for me is two things. It's watching Dustin Rhodes last year have that much match with Cody on paper at the age of fifty. I went, okay, he's fifty, and he did that. I'm I'm thirty four or thirty five. <laughs> I got a lot more if I take care of myself and I want it. You know, I got a lot more left to give, you know? And then the other thing has been watching Chris Jericho at 50 years old, you know, week in, week out, be like the best performer on that show, the most entertaining, the most memorable, I think every week, he, he kind of, he always steals the spotlight, if you will. So, and those are two examples. Like, so if you take care of yourself and you're injury free and you, you want it and you put the work in just like anything else, you know, the results will come. So just because I think that age old, I don't know, like, when I got into the business, it was weird. Like if you turned 30, it was like the kiss of death. Like, oh, you're on the decline. And that's like pretty far from accurate now. You're not even like in your prime yet at 30, I think, the way the business has changed. Yeah, for sure. And 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 Dustin is, looks unbelievable. And Jericho blows my mind every week, uh, just the way he's able to, to recreate himself year to year, month to month, and now week to week uh, as an entertaining heel, which is hard to do. Um just blows my mind. And, you know, we've had that conversation. He's been on the podcast. He's a friend of, friend of mine here in Tampa. But, uh, yeah, it's it's unbelievable. Um, so talk to me about the Major Wrestling Figure podcast uh, that you and, and Matt Cardona do. Uh, uh, from what I hear, you guys are uh, uh, making the uh, wrestling figures uh, valuable again. Uh, I think we've created a lot of awareness of things. So th there's so much to it. Um it was really Matt's idea. Like he's like, let's, we, you know, we, we basically the backbone of our relationship for 16 years has been that we both love wrestling figures and we're not just, we don't just like them. Like we love them and we're addicted and obsessed and uh, wildly like, you know, the, the, the things we do at our collection and stuff is pretty, pretty absurd. 
And we basically took the conversations we were having in the car every weekend, and now we put them out there for the world to hear. And what happened in doing so, which we didn't even realize, is that so many like-minded people are seeing like eye to eye with us, you know, and there's, they're, they're, they're in the same boat, the same rabid passion collections. And we've built this community around us and this fan base that's so uh, loyal and uh, we're all just so similar. And I think, I think them seeing two big WWE wrestlers, like kind of bare their souls about some really, what you would technically call nerdy stuff uh, really like opened a, a lot of people's hearts to the two of us so it, it's been humbling it's been a shit ton of fun it's been um lucrative which was something i honestly didn't even think about you know we didn't do it for money we did it because we just love it you know so uh and like i said it, it keeps me young in my mind and my heart and like always humbles me and makes me remember you know that i once was this five-year-old kid that just had that wrestlemania 6 vhs and fell in love with this wacky uh business you know so it's been just so many things um i'm just just honestly very grateful for it now at this point it's it's a very big part of my life so i know almost nothing about wrestling figures but to wrap this up if you had to pick the one that's the most important one in your collection what would that be and why well we talk about this a lot like you could go by value and what you know something's worth on the secondary market or just you know, is there a figure that, you know, your dad bought you a Toys R Us in 1992 and you just never forgot about it? And that's those sentimental feelings are what make people's kind of collections. That, that, that's like the what, what puts them all into perspective. You know, I can't go back in time, but these figures are like the the bridge to my childhood and all those good sentimental feelings. And it's about as close as you can get is is, you know is collecting these or, you know, the feelings that you get from these certain things. So to me, it's just, it, it's that it's like having those old, you know, early nineties Hasbro's and just remembering like, you know, how excited I was as a kid to get them and how, uh, innocent my mind was for the business, you know, something you almost can never get back. Um, yeah. So it's things like that. Like, I don't care about the value. Another big thing on the show is we say, let them breathe. Like, Matt and I don't think figures should just be kept in the packaging. We feel like they should be opened up and, you know, let them breathe and appreciate them, you know, because they are works of art too, in in another way, you know? And uh, I think that's, what's made the business boom is that kid people, I didn't want to say kids, people my age are now in their mid thirties and they are parents themselves and they have jobs and they have money and they can go back and spend the money on getting these things and having them to collect themselves or maybe sharing them with their kids and having like another, you know, bonding experience through the figures you know so there's a lot more to it than just thinking someone's a geek for liking toys you know what is the most valuable uh action figure out there uh if i if you had to apply to put you on the spot there there's a couple uh bangers i mean there's um there was wwf mail away hasbro's of brett undertaker and hogan in like 93 that not a lot of people hung on to. And if you have that in the bag, like an undertaker went for five grand two weeks ago on eBay. So, I mean, that's pretty impressive for one wrestling figure. Um, And and there's quite a few in that, in that realm. Uh, So it's definitely a business. Like you can make a business of it. Like Matt has made a lot of money buying like lots and taking what he wants for his collection and flipping, you know, what he didn't want. So if, if, you, if you're in it for that kind of game, that you know, there's that side of it, too. 
Does your daughter, do they, your daughters, are they old enough to play with the, the action figures with you? Yeah, my three-year-old is is way into dolls and toys and stuff. And uh, I, I've basically gotten her, she has a ring and she has all my buddies and she had like the people who I'm friends with in the business. And she had, I keep, I, every time I see a female and she doesn't have it, I get it for her. So she's got quite a big collection of the female performers in the business. And um, she, she likes to play with them, but she she always wants me to play with them with her because I think that's like her attachment to them. So of course, yeah. So it's pretty pretty cool. It's one of my favorite things to do. Last question: How many figures uh, have come out with uh, you over the years? Honestly, I don't know. Twenty or so, I'd say. Um, Matt and I right now have a ton of stuff in the works. Like we work with Ringside Collectibles. Yeah, um, I saw that. They're making several figures of us this year. We're working with Processing Tees. They're making micro brawlers of us this year. We're working with Super 7, which is a big time toy company that has like major licenses like Disney and the MLB and stuff. They're making like highly articulated elite style figures that will basically go hand in hand with your uh, Mattel elite figures and your AEW figures from Jazzware. So that's very exciting. So we got, we got a lot of stuff going on. Um, so the more even more even coming out now as an independent pro wrestler than were you know when I was in WWE. It's crazy. Hey, Brian, I really appreciate the time. Great stuff, and um, best of luck to you. And uh, I look forward to working with you as long as that ride lasts. And uh, appreciate your time for sure. Thanks, bro. I'll see you next week. Go Mets, I guess. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> want to thank Brian Miters, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, interesting look into his career and also look into the brainchild that is the WWE that so many people scratch their heads and, and, and can't understand why a company that has the resources that they do uh, can't seem to get things together um, as far as pushing talent and that kind of stuff. And uh, I, I think that that, that was, it was certainly an insight to me. Uh, from somebody who's been there for almost 15 years on and off. And I uh, hope it was an insight to you. And look, the wrestling business is is best when everybody's uh, doing great. So I, I wish the best for WWE. I wish the best for for Ring of Honor when it comes back, for AEW, for Impact, obviously, uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling. So uh, never wish anything bad on a pro wrestling company unless they do something that, you know, is is, is – unprofessional then you know forget about it but um so i i I don't wish bad on wwe i'm not happy to say that guys like ricochet and and to god there's so many people out there that could be ricochet uh you know kurt hawkins being one of them that got a stop start push and you know and and could have been a big star and maybe at some point and maybe won't uh i guess uh, the lesson that we learned this uh time is that Uh, At least for a little while, at least they were making really, really, really good money. And although money's not everything, it doesn't hurt. So uh, looking forward to have another big guest next week on the City Ringside podcast. If you don't subscribe, be sure to subscribe. You can check out City Ringside at any platform that has podcasts. And be sure to leave a uh, review if possible. Tell your friends and neighbors, spread the word. And you can follow me at David Penzer, all one word, on Twitter. Until next week, I'm David Penzer, still City Ringside. Have a good one. Follow David Penzer on Twitter at David Penzer. Also, make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Penzer Ringside. 
You've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. I'm Jerry Petuck, CEO of Radio Influence. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for downloading and subscribing to this podcast. There are a lot of people behind the scenes here at Radio Influence that work hard to keep you entertained day in and day out. If you'd like to get involved and advertise on this program, or you have some show ideas that you'd like to see us add to the Radio Influence family, please email us at contact at radioinfluence.com. We all have crazy schedules, so the fact that you took time out of your busy day to let us entertain you for a while means a lot. Without you, the listeners, we wouldn't exist. So thank you again for downloading and subscribing to this show. Don't forget to check out RadioInfluence.com to see what other shows we also have to offer. All of Radio Influence's programming can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com. <laughs>